Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. On this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion, I am joined by my friend and writing partner, Kirsty Collin. Kirsty has worked in the construction industry for the last 18 years. And her current role is Global Head of CRM for Gleeds, where she's been since October this year. In the 17 years with her previous company, Kirsty's roles included recruitment consultant, project manager, and head of customer satisfaction, with an additional role of well-being ambassador. Kirsty inspires everyone she comes into contact with for her passion for raising awareness around mental health and her work to help break down the stigma both inside and outside of work. Kirsty has bravely shared her experience of the loss of her partner, Ben, to suicide in 2020 as part of her drive to change perceptions around mental health, grief and suicide within the construction industry and beyond. She believes that the experiences she's had over the last few years, which include her father suffering with psychosis, then more recently a diagnosis of dementia, as well as navigating through her own grief and mental health challenges, have happened to her so that she can now educate others on subjects that people may have no experience in themselves. In this episode of the podcast, Kirsty and I talk about the impact of suicide, what an employer's responsibility is when it comes to mental health and well-being, and why the impact of poor workplace well-being extends far beyond the office. If you're in HR or workplace health and safety, then this episode was made for you. This is a trigger warning. For uh, anybody listening to this podcast, this is going to be a an emotional, a difficult, a, a, a brutal and honest discussion about suicide. Yes. Right. Um, and as much as we focus a lot here on the well-being rebellion, on the more commonplace mental health disorders such as anxiety and depression even though it ranges to burnout and we touch on suicide I thought it was really important for us to get the perspective of someone who's actually been through a partner a loss of a partner through suicide because I wanted everybody who listens to Wellbeing Rebellion to understand what we're actually talking about, what the risk of not getting this right in your workplace actually is and what that means. Yeah. I think we gloss over it a bit too much sometimes. Yeah. We're going to do that. So if this is something that is potentially triggering to you, please seek advice before listening to it. Don't be alone. And if you do need help, do not hesitate to reach out to either Obehi or myself or your mental health provider. Okay. But we're, we're still going to go there. We have to, I think yes. this is too important a topic. Yeah. So welcome Kirsty to Thank the you. wellbeing rebellion. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming. Um, um, and we're recording from a very unusual setting. You see, we are recording from the inside of a converted Land Rover, which 
um, is serving as a meeting room. And it is actually, I think, the perfect setting for quite an intimate discussion. Definitely intimate, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Kirsty's like, it's a little bit too intimate and cozy. So. No, no, it's good. And uh, yeah, you know, okay. I, like, I like the, the leather and, um, yeah. Careful what you say, I like the leather. <laughs> Okay, just as a little, just as a little aside, I said to Kirsty when we were doing sound check, say something, say something, and she said, "Test tickles, test tickles." <laughs> um, so then, uh, I just, I just want to clarify, we're talking about the serious subject of mental Sorry, health here. Yeah. No mention of testicles. Right, no more testicles, no more leather <laughs> whips, chains, or anything. Okay. This is a this is a children's show. It's a family appropriate yes, show, I know, actually, Kirsty. I know. Okay. No, but really, thank you so much for coming and being so candid with us about what is a very difficult part of your life. Um, so I, I really appreciate it that you're going to be open with us and that you've allowed us um, the opportunity to ask some some difficult questions yeah yeah and I, I welcome the opportunity because you know one of the main reasons that I do things like this is to try and turn something which was absolutely awful into a positive and I think by sharing this and educating people who maybe hopefully haven't been through something like this it just gives them some insight and and gives them a way to to consider situations that they may not find themselves in Hmm. so for the benefit of people who don't know you can you tell us a little bit about who you are I've, I've said some things in the intro but be good to hear who you are what you do and how you came to really be here with me yeah <laughs> <laughs> Still don't know the answer to that yes i know <laughs> many people are asking themselves that question too um so yes yeah, so a little bit about me well gosh I don't, I don't even know professionally or personally or a bit of mix of everything who so... is the real Kirsty <laughs> Collin I don't know but if you could find out could you let me know <laughs> <laughs> so professionally I have worked in the construction industry for the last 20 years I currently work for a company called Gleeds as their global head of CRM, which I think is grander than, than it's no, It sounds really grand. <laughs> it does. Anything um, that says global, I'm like, Yeah, Ooh. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so, um, and Gleeds are a, a great company. I just want to kind of shout out to them for having a, an amazing kind of working culture. Um, that's one of the reasons I, I've started to work with them. I've been with, the, with them for six months. Um, so, yeah, I just want to give them, them a shout out for a wonderful, warm welcome and an open culture which allows people to kind of talk which is good um personally i'm a single mum to two children which brings its own challenges so i've got izzy who's 12 and adam who is nine uh, the light of my lives i'd like to say but also the reason that i drink gin but in terms of me as a person i I'm a very positive person, hence I think that's the reason why I am here because, like I said, turning something which is a very big negative into a positive. So I always manage to to try and turn things around um, to be a positive. I love the outdoors in warm weather. I I do get very cold. Um, 
I am impulsive. I am happy generally. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know what else to, to oh, say about myself. And, <laughs> and the reason I ask is because it helps to give um, our listeners a sense of who you are and who you who you are in relation to them. I think it's just really to give a flavour of who they're hearing this story from matters. So you are a positive person. You are someone who is looking for the lining in every cloud, yeah. the silver one. Um, and you're actually the opposite of me. I naturally find fault with situations and then have to force myself into finding the positive. I think you will, you just naturally, you know there's a positive in there and you gravitate towards yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I don't know if this helps or not, but and probably some, the main thing about me is that I'm a huge empath. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know if that kind of, does it being an empath match with the positivity? Because I don't I don't know. I no, find I, it difficult when yeah, I can pick up on people's well, negative that's exactly, emotions. Exactly, and I, I guess I pick up on them and I do take them on. But again, I'll, I'll put a positive spin on it. So yeah, I'm, I'm a positive empath. I love that. <laughs> and as a positive empath, Kirsty, have you personally ever experienced mental health challenges? Yes, yes. Um, probably more so situational anxiety, for example, like when my marriage broke down and I made the decision to leave at, at that point of going, I kind of definitely had situational anxiety and and that's then led on to me with my phrase that I stole from whoever said this but this too shall pass mm. um I think my realization of, of of having gone through situational anxiety made me realize that that was the case because I got to the point where I was like I can't cope I'm not gonna be able to do this and went to the doctors and got given medication which didn't work for me and made me worse um, and, and medication has its has its place but I think because it was situational anxiety rather than a kind of chemical imbalance that mm. was why they didn't work for me and so if I'd have just waited a little bit longer and styled mm -hmm. it out mm -hmm. and not panicked when I got to kind of fever pitch I would have come down the other side and I, and I would have been all right and as, as it turned out the medication hindered my kind of getting over that and then eventually I came off that and, and came back up so situational anxiety is something that is very real for me I I don't think I've ever suffered with depression but what I have obviously suffered is grief mm. and complex grief I was diagnosed with complex grief and having supported Ben through his mental health struggles I then saw the similarities between depression and anxiety and, and PTSD in his case and grief which have exactly the same things although mm. in a shorter term you know I went through the depression I, I, I went through the you know all the different stages the stages which bargaining. I didn't agree with I, I at first I said I wasn't going to go through them yeah no this is I'm going to do I'm going to do grief I'm gonna my way yeah I'm going to yeah. curse you oh yeah okay. and, and I absolutely no I'm, I'm not gonna I'm never gonna be mad I'm not gonna go through anger because I understand why Ben did it, so I, I refuse to be angry. Mm. And you can't bypass the stages. They're there for a reason, and they're proven. And having come, I'm going to say come through the other side, 
I've not come through grief. And that's another thing that's an issue with me. I like to complete things and <laughs> I think I thought and you can't I can box this. I can't complete oh, grief and yeah. I can't go through the the pathways and the stages because grief is messy. It's it's unpredictable. It's not linear. You don't, you know, you get the the five stages and you're not going to go through one and get a flag for that one and then go, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like that. It's it's messy, it's horrible, it's painful. It's so many different things and with the added complexity of losing someone to suicide that just kind of you know really adds adds fuel to the fuel fuel to the flame <laughs> something like that i'm i'm really rubbish at sorry i'm really ditzy you might that's You're, about that, me. That's, no i think this is like post uh, post um childbirth mummy brain thing yeah, that we just yeah. can't quite get yeah the, i get called mrs is it mrs malaprop i even got oh that yeah wrong. i even got that wrong i was mrs. like mrs malaprop malaprop yeah i like that yeah so can i be called... mrs malaprop yeah, as well let's, let's be team malaprop <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why i really like that so much but <laughs> it's a good word to say yeah malaprop <laughs> but I, I really like being part of Team Malaprop. There you go. Okay. So we can get our phrases wrong then. Don't judge us. <laughs> yeah. But you you t- touched briefly on Ben and his in, in his um, story. Could you tell us a little bit about what's happened? What is it that we're talking about that you, the grief that you have yet to transition fully through? So Ben was amazing he's he's a love of my life absolutely and you know I feel very very lucky to have met him we got together and it was all lovely um he had been through something in his childhood which he'd kept throughout all his kind of adult life something happened which then triggered him to kind of consider this and have feelings and thoughts about this um, which then led to his mental health suffering quite a lot at that point he spoke to me quite openly I think I was well I know I was the first person that he'd ever spoken mm. to about this thing and I think I often say this quite naively I thought we could get him the help that he needed through the NHS, you know, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll go, we'll speak to someone, we'll get you the help, da, 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 da. Can I ask what year this was? 2018. Okay, pre-pandemic. Yep. Pre yep. this yep. mental health crisis, it was yep. when the help should have been available. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say from what I witnessed then, we it was in crisis already at that point. And, you know, obviously post-pandemic it's worse than ever and and again having my own first-hand experience of that now through trying to find help for my daughter at the moment and trying to get children you know it's, it's a kind of mess so going back to Ben you know I convinced him again thinking naively you know open up tell someone you've got to get help and so he did that and the first thing that we came up against was stigma, huge stigma, because Ben was used to work on the doors in Manchester, big burly guy, tattoos, you know, someone that you wouldn't, well, I don't, I don't know, it shouldn't be that you wouldn't think would have mental but health you just, issues. But we make assumptions on how people about look. a tough guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so we went in, we went into a hospital, I think it's Chester, and... He was in a state of crisis mm. and he opened up to 
the, I think it must have been a triage nurse, who was amazing, she was lovely, um, you know, kind of spoke, told his story, la da 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 and I was like, right, this is it, we're going to get you the help now, we hadn't slept for, his sleep was, was kind of all over the place, he hadn't slept for a few days, he was really not in a great place, yeah. and then somebody came in after that and was like, no, um, we're just charging you, off you go, out, and and that was it, and um to this day I was just like what mm. <laughs> why because um, the, the the triage nurse who had been in before was like we'll get you in for a couple of days we'll get you you know sleep we'll get you once mm-hmm. you, you know because you know it's like with no sleep yes. your brain does not work at all yes um and so yeah and then and then from then on it was just a, a constant battle to try mm. and get help from from the services now I'm not anti-NHS I love the NHS mm. you know but as we all know, underfunded, understaffed, and at that point, not a very good understanding um, of, of mental, mental health. health. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone. It was always a. I think depression and anxiety were the the two things that you either had at that mm-hmm. point, and obviously there's a lot more complexities with PTSD and and all sorts and personality disorders and and a wide range of things. So, and I think that another problem that you have is that in terms of GPs as well you know when you go to your GP they're called general practitioners for a reason because they're general and they, mm. they're not specialist in one area and again finding this out from then getting a diagnosis of depression and things and you know eventually after different scenarios different suicide attempts and all sorts of things we, we did get a diagnosis from him uh, for him when he was up in Scotland and that was the first time after kind of a year and a half that anyone had actually diagnosed and it was PTSD um and the meds that I'd been given were actually making him worse mm. because they weren't the right meds because he hadn't had the right diagnosis in the first place so mm. so I think it's it's a difficult one because I, I could talk all day about medication and as I say it's it's got its place and it's it's when there's a chemical imbalance I believe that they they have a place and I'm not a medical professional so don't take this is my opinion from my experience Mm -hmm. um but it you know a lot of times when you go to a GP I can guarantee if you go and say you've got a low mood you will walk out there with a prescription and for me it should be talking therapy first getting to Mm -hmm. the root of the problem rather than trying to mask it with with medication but I get that they have to cover their backs and they have to do be seen as doing something and medication mm. is a is a, a quick way of doing that and yeah and it's again just talking about an, an, an experience with Ben when his medication was faltering and he tried different ones and I, I remember going again because I was quite naive to all of this this was my first experience of trying to to get help for someone but you know he tried lots of different medications and was having different reactions and things and we went one day and the doctor just got the the book is it the G with all the medications in it I can't remember what it's called I can't remember yeah so literally had her finger and was going citralopram or you know metazapine and doing through no I've tried that one tried that one and literally just going down until Mm. we picked one that we hadn't tried and so there's no there was no kind of what links better to what your requirements are at at that point um, so yeah, it's it's a, it's a minefield, and I know that was a few years ago. But recently, we've had a client who was on antidepressants for 
a long time, over a year, but not showing any improvement. Her workplace were complaining about her performance and her low mood, and it was palpable. Um, and it wasn't until she saw Obehi uh, for a one-to-one um, that OB said, you, you shouldn't have been on your antidepressants no. for this long with no improvement. You need to go back to your GP. Um, the GP then prescribed her a different antidepressant and the shift in her was noticeable within a, a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And you're right. GPs themselves don't know too much about the, the pharmacology of the different drugs. Yeah. And they they know they have to do something. And talk therapy, which would be the most effective, it is, is not yeah. available no. at the present time. They can't leave you with nothing. So they have to just try. It's a situation which has not improved over over the years. No. I think no. it's actually gotten worse. It has. It has. And, and my personal experience with the meds um, is that I'm very good myself at... Um, at pushing things down and and kind of not 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 necessarily not dealing with them but i it's it's your nervous system it kind of provides that natural kind of barrier against things that are scary and not nice and what i found is when i took meds at the situational anxiety stage which i've mentioned before mm. the meds just provided another level of numbness which then meant that i couldn't function <laughs> So, um, yeah. but then when I went back to the doctors after the six week period of, you know, get let them settle in and said, oh my gosh, I can't do anything. I'm, I, I can't get out of bed. Oh, well, that's, that's because you're depressed. And I was like, well, I wasn't depressed at the beginning. <laughs> it was mm. anxiety. We'll, we'll double your dose. And it was in like a, a two minute consultation. And I came out of there mm. with a double dose. And I started and I probably took them for three days and I was like, no, this is this is not right. And mm. and kind of weaned myself back off them. And then I was able, but I needed to be able to deal with what was going on rather than dumbing it down with mm. meds, which made me not feel I needed to be able to, to deal with the, the feelings I was having. And I think the reason this line of conversation is so important is because I think our audience is mostly HR um, and business leaders need to understand the situation in the health service so that they can understand why they now have the responsibility, yeah. whether they want it or not, yeah. to support their employees to get well sooner. Yeah. And if the NHS is unable to support people to full health, full mental health, um, in a in a reasonable time frame, and I understand the time frame now for the talk the time frame waiting list for talk therapy in some parts of the UK is up to two years. Yeah, well, that's ridiculous. Um, so so we have to bridge the gap somehow, yeah. or else we will have a zombie workforce yeah. who are definitely underperforming and aren't able to just pick themselves up because we ask them to or we threaten them. Um, and, and even that understanding of if someone does start taking medication, I mean, I've just said then you, you have a six week period of trying to mm. get people right where 
you know, there's a suicide risk that comes within the first two weeks of taking antidepressant because you feel worse before you get better. Yeah. Not everybody knows that or understands that or, you know, sees that. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. There's no silver bullet with this, unfortunately. And just to counter that, like my experience with uh, anti-anxiety, anti-depression medication has been a largely positive one. Yeah. But I was fortunate enough, I was seeing a private talk therapist yeah. at the same time. And it, yeah, I had the same zombie-like numbness for six, four, four six weeks, more than yeah. that. I think for two months, I didn't believe it was really doing anything other than stopping me feeling yeah. Yeah. bad. But I wasn't able to feel good. I, I don't know that antidepressants do that. Um, they don't do that quickly because they're replacing chemicals yeah. and everybody's chemical composition is different and exactly. it's it's tough. But I don't want any, anybody listening thinking that we're we're recommending you stay away from medication. No, not that's at what all. I said. It, it has its place. I think you, you've got to kind of look at your situation and, and what's going on. And, mm. and it, it's your experience, you know, it's, it's all relative, isn't it? Mm. So after that initial shocking and unhelpful experience of with Ben how did you ultimately get to the stage where uh, Ben lost his life to suicide can you tell us what happened um so Ben tried we tried um Ben was obviously doing the hard work with therapy uh, we got we got privately through his workplace. He tried EMDR. He, he tried. Sorry, what's EMDR? So EMDR. Oh, I can't remember the full title. Electromagnetic desensitizing something therapy. Yeah. Something. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, the best way to describe that should I, should I tell you about the yes. description which I, we got told? So basically, it's. I mean, it sounds a bit sci-fi. I remember when we kind of heard about it at the time, but. If you've had something bad happen and you've got those memories, it's about reprogramming the memories to be positive or not even to be positive, but not have the same sort of horrible feeling. You know, when you think about mm-hmm. something bad and your stomach drops or you, you kind of. So the best analogy I got given was that your brain is an airing cupboard with lots of towels in there that are all been shoved in when you wash them. Right. And you can't quite shut the cupboard door and the, the towels keep falling out when you're walking past. So EMDR is taking those towels out, folding them nicely and then putting them back in the cupboard so that they're manageable and they're not falling in when you walk past. So, Using some kind of electromagnetic... Yeah, so it's a light that kind of puts you into some sort of hypnotic state mm-hmm. where, and sorry to all the professionals out there who could explain this much better than me this is in some sort of layman's terms and then you talk about the trauma or the, the bad experience and something happens with the science and the brain bit which then kind of reprocesses mm-hmm. your thoughts and feelings around that trauma okay so pretty he tried he tried that how long does that therapy it varies depending on the kind of the, the traumas and and how you kind of respond to that I guess so mm. um so yeah so he tried that talking was therapy. it successful well I would say not just because of, of the, the outcome yeah. but 
I mean, and I'll I'll go into the details of of the outcome um, in a moment. But yeah, it, it's he did he did try everything. They worked at a, a moment in time for a period of time, mm-hmm. and with something with like Ben was kind of going through. It's it's very complex, and again, there's no silver bullet to kind of fix this. So if we if we look at it kind of in a snapshot of, of Ben, so he's going through kind of, he's got a trauma, which he's trying to deal with or traumas. He's tried different medications. Some have, some have worked for a period and then they started to not work. So then he's had to go through that process of trying a different medication. So, you know, we're talking time frames of it, you know, six weeks for it to get in the system. Oh, it's still not working up the dose another six weeks to kind of do that actually it's not working let's start again so there's lots of those kind of medication cycles if you like which are taxing and you know you're trying to hold down a job and and do life at the same time and then you know um therapy trying that unpacking talking all the rest of the things which he kind of uh, went through and then he he got onto a level we had we had a, a kind of period of time where it was it was good and mm-hmm. he was like and and I've got to say our relationship and for anyone that's kind of heard or read my blog or you know things that I've kind of when I spoke about before we had an amazing it, it was a bit like a fairy tale when you look back and, and people will kind of agree you know we had an amazing relationship and despite the mental health troubles that he had and I always say this it probably made up 10 percent and a big 10 percent but we had, we travelled, we had experiences, we we just lived, loved, you know, it was it was all amazing. So from the outside, you and he would have looked happy. Yes. Yeah. Um. From you know, again, perception, social media. We were we were happy. We were mm-hmm. we were very much in love. But no just, one would have known what was going on. No, they particularly. <laughs> Only after there was there was a suicide t- attempt in 2018, so I think people then became aware because he'd gone mm. missing. So there was a lot of social media police trying to find him. You know, there's okay. there's a lot of, of things around that. So that at that point, then kind of everybody in my town and and you know knew that he was obviously struggling with his mental health. Um, at that point, we spoke very openly about his mental health, and we had. We had there was some tough things that I would have to ask, like um, you know I do this a lot in or oh, you hear about it in training was asking the question mm. if he was suicidal, you know and it, how did you ask like that? <laughs> Are you feeling suicidal? Yeah, so we were, mm. I remember one time when we were kind of laying on the bed and he was he was upset and he was he was feeling low, mm. and because there had been a previous attempt, I just said you know Are you feeling suicidal? Which is difficult, but but not at the same time. Once you've mm. done it, it's yeah. kind of not as. And he said, "Yeah." Mm. And and what did you do? I then? just then kind of sprung into action and was like, "Right, okay, now I know. We'll ring up the mental health team and mm-hmm. we will do this, 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 and this." And you know, it wasn't any kind of big dramatics or anything. It was just mm. a right, okay. I know. Thanks for telling me let's let's get this sorted and then from then he we went to see the mental health team and he had admitted himself into um 
the mental health ward at, at St Helens and had a, a stay in there um, to kind of look after him, give him the rest, try and resort his meds out again because they were failing and it's, it was better to him to be in that safe environment to take him off one and bring him on mm. to another and stuff. So, but that, again, you know, the reason I'm telling you this is to kind of reinforce that he did everything that he could and, and all the right things, um, I guess. And there's a reason I'm, I'm telling you that, which, which I'll kind of come on to. But so, yeah, everything was was good. November 2019, my dad suffered um, a psychotic episode, which was awful, truly awful. So mm. he um, had to get my dad sectioned. He was hearing voices and, and again, I'd never had anything to do with psychosis or an understanding of it. He was really poorly, so he was in, ironically, in the same hospital that Ben had been in. And he, Ben was out now, so my dad had gone in. And so this was November, and it was a really, really stressful time, a horrible time, because we couldn't get my dad under control for weeks and weeks, so it was, it was awful. Um, ben was aware of that, and, you know, I remember having a conversation with him and saying to him, you know, just because this is going on, with my dad don't think it means I've kind of taken my eye off you or if you're feeling in any way I mean he was stable mm-hmm. at that time but just kind of reinforcing you know I can do it all <laughs> as I do and yeah so that so that happened dad in hospital and we got to January and Ben's medication started faltering again and you know he'd had a period of, of months we'd been to Budapest in the December for a few days mm-hmm. absolute amazing trip I mean you look back at the pictures I still look back at the pictures now and I'm like how a month later was he gone <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it it's just it's I still find that quite difficult to to get my head around mm-hmm. so the medication started to falter in the beginning of January and he knew and I knew that he would have to go through this cycle again of what he'd been through, you know, of the medication. We're going to have to wean you off, try and find another one and go through that again. And he was tired. Um, and, mm. you know, I, I don't think I could have walked in his shoes for a week, never mind, as, as long as he did. So he was he was tired. And one of the one of the big things and one of the reasons that he went was because we were so happy that it would frustrate him that why can we be so happy and have everything that we wanted? We had our little house, we had our little, you know, blended family with my two children and his son. And we had a nice car, we, we had nice holidays, we had all these things. But despite that, he couldn't silence the demons. Mm. And that that was the kind of big thing in the end. And as with lots of people with mental health issues and who feel like that, they feel like they're a burden. Yeah add that to the fact that my dad was poorly at the time and he could see the the pressure I was under despite me going I'm fine I'm fine I can do all this it's fine you know for him and once that kind of darkness sets in for him it made sense it's like you know she's I'll be one less problem for her mm-hmm. to think about wrongly so yeah so in in January he at the end of January he went missing and yeah he after the the third day 
got the call or got the police officer turning up at the house to tell mm. me that Ben had, had ended his life in Germany, in Hamburg. So, yeah, which wasn't great. <laughs> well, that's a mammoth understatement, but um, I, there are a couple of things I want to say. The point that you made about um, Ben thinking that he was... Uh, going to remove one less burden from your life so that you could focus on the people who really counted um, is definitely a common thing I remember feeling like if only I had the courage to complete suicide then my family would be better off if I could be sure that I do it right then they could have insurance money they could my husband could remarry because he's still under 40 the kids are young enough they wouldn't remember who I was and they could be happy with a new stepmom. If I could just have the courage and confidence to do it right, not mess it up. Yeah. So that's definitely the thing. Yeah. And that point that I made before about grief and the similarities, I then, you know, at points of grief mm. when I didn't want to be here anymore, I wasn't suicidal, but yeah, I was definitely in the fight or flight mode when, you know, and I didn't want to be here anymore. And never when I when Ben used to say it I'd be go I understand I understand and it was only when I had those feelings myself going through the low dark horrible points of grief that I was actually like oh no I I understand it it now Mm. I get it now because I felt like a burden I felt like two months of grief was long enough and that people were sick of me talking about it or you know, that people would be rolling their eyes. No one ever did. No one ever did. That's my own kind of, mm. that's that own, when you're in that dark place and everything is skewed and your brain plays horrible, horrible, mean tricks on you, making you think these things when actually they couldn't be any further from the truth at all because people do care. You're not a burden. I, I There's not one single point I thought, god ben you're a burden you know Mm. i don't want to help all i ever felt was that i wanted to help and what can i do and how can we get through this how can we get through this together you're not on your own you know and and you're right all those things that you said about that kind of thought process he went through you know Mm. i he didn't want to affect my daughter you know we'd, we'd told her just weeks before and we were lucky we did she twigged she's a bright spark she twigged that granddad was in the same hospital that Ben had been in and when Ben was in that hospital we told her it was because of his tummy and when granddad was in there and she knew it was because of psychosis Mm. she's like so we told her two weeks before he went he said actually told you a little white lie Ben was in hospital because he was suffering with depression and anxiety and thank god we did because when he did end his life yeah she had some context to, to kind of put that to and you know, if it would, I think it would have been very different if if she didn't. So, yeah. Hmm. The other the other point that I wanted to pick up on was Ben's suicide was very much a planned endeavor, wasn't yes. it? I mean, the fact that he was in Germany. Can you explain that? Yeah. Well, funnily enough, funnily nothing funnily about this, but I was talking about this yesterday. I can't remember who with, but when Ben in 2018 when he decided that he was going to end his life he went off and he went missing he always went to places that kind of meant something to us and he'd gone off 
up to Scotland mm-hmm. um, and was going to Ben Nevis and, and had his, his plan in place there. And I, along with the police, it was like some kind of super detective trying to figure out where he was and, and worked out and eventually we, we intercepted him and got him to um to safety. And then again, just to kind of highlight the open conversations that we'd have after that had happened, we we were in a, a swimming pool and we were kind of talking and laughing. And it sounds weird when you when you're saying this, but it was I we were laughing about the programme The Hunted and you know, I was kind mm. of saying to him, you know, I'm quite competitive from those people that know me and we were kind of saying, you know, God Ben you knew I was going to find you. You, you know, you've watched The Hunted. There's a couple of kind of fundamental errors you made on, on, on trying mm. to get found. You know, as, as we did in yeah. those lighthearted conversations, which probably people will be like, what, you were kind of joking about him going missing? But it was yeah, just so, can, it's a I conversation, you yeah. know. And that's the way we communicated about it. So I'd also had the conversation that I had two young children and they weren't aware of him going missing and his mental health struggles at that point. And I had to protect them. And we'd had very... I'd had very con- candid conversations, which he agreed with. It's like, you can't, this can't happen regularly and it can't happen again because I've got to look after my children and, and make sure, you know, that they're not affected mm. by it. So, you know, it was it was something that we'd we'd kind of spoke about. So on the, the final um, attempt, he'd covered all bases. He, I knew he wasn't coming back. I knew um, he'd left his phone his keys which we found later on he'd done his expression of wish and left that in his in his van he he had done everything and then you know after he had ended his life I got a diary which came back to me um which actually got delivered on Valentine's Day and was everything I needed to know and all the kind of I have no questions which have kind of been unanswered and mm-hmm. I, I you know the title of my blog was the unluckiest lucky person and but I feel lucky that I am a survivor of suicide but because I have no unanswered questions I don't sit here thinking what could I have done more Mm. because I knew and I know that I did everything that I could I understand the reasons I don't condone it and I don't agree with suicide but I understand the reasons why he did what he did and like there's just nothing unanswered for me he left Mm. that diary he told me what he was thinking in that diary he told me his plans he said within that and this is a big one really or there's two big ones that come from this diary one was that he said that he had been crying and had traveled from a home in Newton the Willows via Manchester airport via Amsterdam up to Hamburg visibly upset and not one person asked was he okay Mm. which and for him to have written that in his diary at a time when he's ready to end his life yeah it's massive it's huge and then the other thing that he put in there and I guess the reason why I do so much around this is that he said he wanted there to be more help from people for people with mental health issues now the only thing that I've been I was going to say gifted it's it's not a gift in any way but what's happened to me through my dad through Ben through other life experiences is that I've been given these experiences so I feel like that's my superpower to be able to turn it into something positive by educating people and to Mm. to help people understand who probably haven't been through these things before or have no experience so that's the only thing I can do 
that this is it <laughs> this is it's all i can thing. offer from my experiences thank you so much for sharing that it's a really moving story and um i i do find it sometimes difficult to to hear because perhaps i empathize too much yeah but some of our audience might be thinking well that's a moving story what's it got to do with me in terms of work hr or um people management how how is this relevant because he was ill but it was nothing to do with the work or was it there was elements of of work involved and you know i have to say again because it wasn't a, a movement as it is now and and well-being and employee safeguarding if you like wasn't as as kind of big as it is now there were some really fundamental errors made by his employer big ones and and i can't kind of i, I could list but it would be another another hour i think to mm. go through them but i think the biggest ones is that again and the, the reason i try and educate is that people have no experience no understanding not everyone is an empath in fact you know there's I mean, the empaths are powering through now in 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 uh, the workplace, and which I'm I'm glad to see. But people have their own ideas, or you know, you pull yourself together again. How he looked, you know, all these different things. So he didn't get the right support. I think they thought, oh, we've got an, an EAP, and kind of get in contact with them and, and arrange some sessions. He had the sessions. He was making really good progress. And then he'd reached his limit and mm -hmm. they hadn't told him he'd reached his limit. And then he got a call saying, you know, you've got to pay for these sessions now or you're not allowed to have any more sessions. Or it was it was all all over the place. They reasonable adjustments at that time were meant to have been made and they weren't. There was no continu continuity with kind of line management. And there was there was so many errors, so many uncertainties at a time when he needed stability and support mm. and he didn't get that and and got treat, treated pretty awfully and and you know the the place that he worked was was male dominant as well so i think that didn't help in fact in fact i've probably never even considered that but that was definitely a, a factor i think in especially you know lads 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 and, mm -hmm. and um so yeah so it's it's it he just didn't have that support and that stability or understanding at all. Mm. And and that made it even more difficult. But the things that, that went wrong from a workplace perspective are the kind of things that you can see them happening anywhere. Yeah. All companies have a fixed limit on the number of EAP sessions their employees get. All companies will say that they'll make reasonable adjustments, but it depends on your definition of reasonable. Yeah. The this lack of continuity in line management well operational needs precede um, anything else so sorry yeah and you can imagine these things repeating themselves which is why i'm so glad that you shared it yeah what we do with our people matters yeah and we just don't know the knock-on impact of all of these things unless no. we make an effort to find out exactly and and you know what his first suicide attempt when he went missing and went to Scotland was directly off the back of an error that had been made 
where kind of do it in a, a kind of short way but basically he'd had some sessions um he'd seen someone he'd opened up he'd been very open and honest about his his kind of troubles run out of his sessions then got there was no communication around an appointment that he was going to have um what it was for what was going to happen etc etc and he then had to go and have a meeting with someone who he'd no relationship with, who had no understanding, no previous, hadn't bothered to look at his previous history or anything like that and had to kind of rip the plaster off again and him do it again with, with someone else for a different reason. The, the lack of clarity around what it was for, was his job at mm. risk, was, you know, mm. the, the, there was so many unknowns which just exasperated a, a situation and made it worse to the point where he got home that night really upset and then was like, I'm off, I'm not doing this. And it was directly attributed to errors made by the employers at that time. So is there any advice that you would give to my audience about the importance of supporting their employees in the workplace? It's a difficult one because there is the spectrum is so big in terms of, you know, everybody's different. Everyone has their different experiences and things like that. I think one of the things and one of the things that since I've been in this space and I've been kind of doing talks and, and things like that, it's it's about the education, it's about the learning and it's about the understanding and the best asset companies have are their people and hearing their stories and understanding and get, providing a forum or a place or a network, you know, a couple of the company I work at now and, and previous company, that was something that they did really well you know, well-being networks. There was other ones as well, but focusing on, on the well-being. And what you would find is that if you use your people within there, if they're happy to kind of share stories, that then starts this kind of snowball effect, if you like, and, and gets people to understand and look at different perspectives because not everybody is an empath, as we've said, but knowledge is power. And you might not have been in that situation or you might not have experienced but you can learn so much from the people around you. And I think that's important. We're all human. You've, we've mm. got to be treated as human. It's that whole thing from the 90s, you know, about being a number. Mm. And, you know, I don't know if that's still the case, if we're, if we're kind of still seen as numbers and, you know, we're, we're all kind In of... organisation. Yeah, we're all replaceable, aren't we? I think there is that element, isn't there? Yeah, but... But we're, we're human companies. numbers <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah we are humans first and foremost and we're complex and we've got different things going on and so so I think my kind of shout out or my call out is is especially to the people at the top who are you know using the kind of colors of you know blue being empaths and emotionals mm. and the reds up there is just get a bit of blue in you and, and understand and and kind of just take a step back from the operational kind of got to do this, do this, do this. And just remember that they're humans and, and things are going on and, and just learn, learn about different things, but learn from your people. It doesn't have to be some kind of grand expensive thing. Just, just having that human connection with your employees. And what is life for you like now post losing Ben? Um, if you'd have asked me this a couple of weeks ago, I think I probably would have had a different answer than I'm, I'm probably going to give you today. Um, 
it never goes away. I think, I don't know if I've made reference to completing grief. Mm. I, I kind of am that type of person where I'm like, right, let's do this, move on to the next, move on to the next. And you, you can't complete grief and it trips me up still and it's tripped me up um, in the last two weeks. So it's it's still there. Um, I am in a good place generally and a happy place. But it doesn't come without without work, you know. I've had mm. a lot of therapy. Like I said, I was I was diagnosed with complex grief. What's complex grief? It's I, I guess it's a trauma associated to to grief. So you know, it's not that someone died of old age or mm-hmm. you know had a good innings and and you know it's good life. I think because of the okay. the complexity of it being suicide and it being so sudden and you know my whole life being turned upside down and, and on its head and swiveled around I've got a few more times so you know I still have to work at, at on me and I you know I had therapy yesterday I've not I hadn't had it since October um but yeah so yesterday I had therapy because I felt like I needed it and recognized that so it's not plain sailing it's it's always going to be with me I miss Ben like crazy um, and it mm. makes it difficult for me with relationships kind of going forward now because unfortunately for anyone else, you know, I lost Ben at a point where our relationship was absolutely on top form and mm. absolutely loved him, you know, and when someone dies, they're in that kind of status forever. And, you know, in some ways, I'd, and I do recognise that I probably have unrealistic expectations and want that again. I know I'm not going to have that again. And I know the next person, if I get with someone else, will, you know, uh, you love everyone differently. Mm. Um, So I I recognise that. And I'm not looking for someone that's going to replace Ben because they're not going to replace him. So so for now, life looks like, you know, I've got a a great job, two great children, and it's just focusing on me, them, and my job for now and and just living life. You know, it's it's not a dress rehearsal when we're only here once. So you just got to make... The most of things so and continue that positivity <laughs> that's good but allowing space for grace yeah and yeah. allowing space for you to go through the endless cycle of grief yeah and you know i hear that there's been endless platitudes throughout the grief that i always roll my eyes at but they're true you know and it <laughs> like irks me, irks me to say it so time is a healer <laughs> it it is damn it. don't you just want to punch someone who says <laughs> yes. that though <laughs> yeah time is a healer um the big one that which i have taken hold of is is this too shall pass mm. and i will you know i'd happily have that tattooed on my forehead because that is true maybe and not the forehead no because then i couldn't read it myself maybe yeah. i need it on my hands so yeah, i can kind of look, yeah, look at um but this too shall pass is a, is a massive one for me and you do get through things and that's especially to important to people who are feeling mm. suicidal or that things aren't going to get better you know i'm here to, to tell the tale i've gone through as a view mm. we've gone through some pretty horrendous stuff that i look back now and i'm like can i swear yeah <laughs> it's like holy how did I get through that? Now like, bleed that out. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, you just can't believe that you will get through what you've done. And I still can't. I'm still kind of dumbfounded by it, you know, a lot of the times. But then the other one is everything happens for a reason. 
Mm. It's true. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry that all these platitudes are true because... Do you really think so? Oh, uh, it You does. think Ben's suicide yeah. was for a reason? Yeah, I do. And, uh, God, I've come out of this a better person. And mm. I would have Ben here. I would love to have not gone through this, but I have. And this is where I am. And I would have Ben rather than being a better version of myself. But because... I've had to go through what I've gone through. It's taught me so much. And people say when you go through grief, it changes you. It's probably another platitude. And it does. It does. Mm. And for me, again, must because of my positivity, it's changed me for the better. I'm a stronger person. I'm more resilient. I've got a different outlook on life. Some of the things that would bother me before don't bother me now mm. probably an age thing as well as I've come to over 40 and you're a bit more kind of like you know this is me take it or leave it but all of these strengths I've got which Ben knew I had in me and he'd mm. in one of his notes that he'd written previously you know when he said he was going he was like you will get through this mm. you're strong you're this you're this you're this and I'm like no nah, no nah, oh, nah, I want you here actually I'm, I'm yeah. not he was right and he knew and mm. so kind of all the reasons that he did it for I kind of I'm trying to honor that and that sounds yeah. bad again and I don't I don't think it does sound bad but I know and I do know that he'll be proud of me um I know I am thanks that's made me go yeah <laughs> um, I'm, I'm very grateful to know the person that you are today I'm very sad that it takes something like this yeah. to bring us together. <laughs> but I am so thankful that you are a positive malaprop <laughs> oh, who um, is strong enough to get through it. Not just that, but to share with countless other people what you've been through in all the painful details so that they might not have to go through it. Yeah. Uh, that does show incredible resilience i hate that word but it does yeah and and also compassion and kindness so i really thank you thank you thank you for sharing your story kirsty i have one question to ask you oh, go on. i ask it to every <laughs> podcast guest and and it's going to be so much easier than any other questions i ever asked you and i'm going to ask it in my i'm asking my standard question voice. <laughs> go okay. on hit me with it so a signature question, Kirsty. <laughs> As a fellow well-being rebel, what is the one change that you would like to see implemented in workplace well-being? Ooh, there's too many. I can't. I can't. Answer. I can give you three. <laughs> Hell, I get. I'll give you five. I'm like, I'm like, you're making me cry. Pick? <laughs> pick whatever you want. You could say. You could say anything. You could. Sing the phone book for me now, and I'd be like, "Oh my god, Kirsty, that was amazing!" <laughs> I just, I, I think the biggest thing is is back to that human element. That just to remember that we're all humans, and everybody is kind of going through their own things, and you might not know. And again, I hate the way that this has been kind of bastardized. The whole "be kind," you know, it, mm. it's kind of it's been overused uh, and overused I, I've and overused. It. Uh, yeah. What I prefer is the uh, "don't be a dick." I was just. <laughs> Just don't be a dick. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, because, you again, it's been used and used. And it's a good thing that they've been overused and we're sick of them, but they, they still stand. Is that yeah. you don't know what someone's going through. You really don't. And 
take the time to just put yourself in someone else's shoes. I think post COVID, we've we've come out we've come out of it worse people i think mm. that's that's the post that me and you kind of met over where you know I, f- I feel like everyone has become so insular and looking inside and at their own things because mm. we've all been going through something bad that people aren't looking up and out yeah. and that's huge and yeah you know and it was happening before covid i think it's been ex- exasperated and i think it's worse now mm. um is my opinion and that doesn't help with things like mobile phones and all sorts when we're all everyone's walking around and got the heads down and you know and things like that so but just just look up be aware put yourselves in someone else's shoes and yeah and I loved that blog post it was the one that for whatever reason I actually read and I and then I did connect with you. You remembered, over that. yeah. yeah it, was an event, it was at an event, wasn't me it? And my, you were like, uh, yeah. I recognise your name. And you went, Do you live in London? Because I was in London when I yeah. posted it. And I was like, No. <laughs> <laughs> me and my ADHD don't remember Jack, Kirsty, but I remembered that because it was so, it was different from the norm. And I think uh, my audience would really benefit from, from reading some of your posts. So um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to put the link to your blog if it's still up. Yeah. 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 So I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, and that that particular po- post was so poignant. Like you said, we're so stuck looking down, sells, yeah. navel gazing that yeah. we don't even we don't even recognize the beauty and the grief that's going on all around us. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll put the link in the show notes and please do everybody have a look at um, Kirsty's blog. It's called Unluckiest Lucky Person. So it was it was lockdown grief because um, it was obviously during lockdown when when I was going through most of my grief, mm. <laughs> having lost him just before then. So yeah, and and you know that was cathartic for me. Just that was my outlet at that time, and it's it can be a tough read just to kind of warn people. It's very honest and candid, and yeah has helped a lot of people which makes me happy because that was the, the reason I put it out there. We'll also put some other resources with regards to suicide help and prevention and I just want to thank all of you who have uh, listened to the whole of this episode. Thank you for for sticking with such a difficult topic and thanks once again to my incredible and strong and fellow Malaprop guest. <laughs> I love that word now. <laughs> my fellow Malaprop guest, Kirsty Conn. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show note, and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.